0: We'll take our Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 19 this morning. Matthew 19. The kingdom of God is not like the kingdoms of this world. It's an upside down, inside out kingdom, a place where the poor are exalted, where the lowly are chief among us, where the children and only the children get to enter, where the humble are exalted and the great ones are the servants of all, where the first are last and the last are first, And the values of the kingdom of God are so foreign to the kingdoms of men. No wonder they look at us and, I don't know, feel sorry for us for wasting our life for foolishness or are moved with anger and hatred even at times because the values of Christ's kingdom run so contrary to the values of the world. And when the disciples ask Jesus, who's the greatest? He says, it's the little children. When they ask Him, how many times do I forgive my brother? Seven times? He says, no, 77. And it's just, it just runs contrary. And of course, uh, the kingdom of Christ is really what is right side up? It's the whole world around us that's upside down. And that's why to them the kingdom of Christ looks upside down. The whole world. And it's so pervasive that even we disciples of the Lord uh, sometimes adopt the attitudes of these people among whom we are just sojourners. And you see the that attitude being adopted even by the disciples. You see it by their shocked expressions when Jesus articulates the values of the kingdom. Uh, Like when He talked about the permanence of marriage and they said, "Well, well, maybe then we shouldn't even marry at all. Or when He, in our text today, when He undermines their understanding about the kind of person who's capable of entering the kingdom and they say, well, who then can be saved? You see they 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 have bought into the understanding they have adopted somehow the thinking of the world all around them and the lord jesus throughout this text throughout this whole chapter or two is is taking upside down thinking and setting it right back right side up he's teaching them the values of the kingdom of god and the way that those values play out in all of our relationships in our social spheres. And in this text this morning, Matthew introduces a new example of the right-side-up, top-side-down kingdom by once again showing how foreign it is to the disciples. Look at verse 13, will be our text, through verse 26. Then children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked the people, saying, uh, I'm sorry, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, "'What good deed must I do to have eternal life?' And he said to him, "'Why do you ask me about what is good? "'There is only one who is good. "'But if you would enter life, keep the commandments.' And he said to him, "'Which ones?' And Jesus said, "'You shall not murder, "'you shall not commit adultery,' You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. In our text, there are t- two encounters that Jesus has with people or groups of people that could hardly be any different. First, little children are brought to him for a prayer of blessing. And what Matthew highlights is Jesus' response to these little children who came to Him, these ones, little ones who were brought to Him. And what did the disciples do? They rebuked them. Hey, Jesus doesn't have time for this. He is incredibly busy. Can you not see all of these many, many crowds that are standing around? There are so many People with great, great needs, pressing all around. There are there are people who, who've come all the way from Jerusalem to hear don't he doesn't have time right now for these little children, right? I don't know how what they said, but you could just put yourself in their place. But Jesus rebukes them. He turns around and he says, Let the little children come. Do not hinder them. Remember earlier he said, whoever offends one of these little ones, is better that, that he's cast into the sea with a huge stone around his neck. He said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them, because of such, to such people belongs the kingdom of heaven. And of course he means not just, not just to little children, but to anyone who becomes like a little child. Who sees himself as lowly. Those are the people who are able to come to the great king of all the universe. Then, on the other hand, you have the rich man in verses 16 and following. And this is a man who whose I guess you would say his social standing is in stark contrast to the little children who were just brought to Jesus. This is a man of great influence. He's wealthy. He holds some sort of influential position. Luke says that he's a ruler, so we know him as the rich, young ruler. Right? So he's a man of some kind of influence. I don't know whether he was a, um, a Jewish synagogue ruler perhaps or, or maybe just some sort of community leader in his town. But he's a man of wealth. He's a man of influence. He seems to be a man who had the blessing of God on his life, right? That's the way the Jews would look at it. This man was blessed with all kinds of material possessions. God had his hand upon this man. I mean, this is a guy to to take notice of, right? Wouldn't you say? You all know, uh, you know, when you meet certain people... You, For whatever reason, you just all of a sudden tend to be more attentive than when you pass by others. This is one of those kind of guys. There was something about him that just arrested their attention. And not only was he wealthy and influential, but his prosperity and his influence were all the more Striking because this wasn't one of the elders, this was a relatively young man who had achieved all of this influence already at an early age. So so there, you know, there's there's clearly um, something striking about his character. Not just that he was lucky in business. Uh, in fact, it's very clear as they have this conversation that this is an incredibly moral man. This is a man who is a spiritually earnest person. He's not out there just, you know, working nine to five, and he doesn't care about anybody or anything. He's seeking out religious teachers, trying to find out if there's a a missing part of his, his life, right? I mean, he's a man that we would all take notice of. This rich, young ruler and the disciples were excited. I think, to have this clean-cut, well-respected, successful leader become very interested in their movement, in their master, to come out to talk to their teacher. I mean, think about it. These guys were used to being rejected by religious leaders, right? They were always having these battles with the Pharisees. They were never appreciated... They believe that this was the Messiah, and nobody else did. And they just—they're going on and on. This little obscure group following this rabbi around, and and they're just like, finally, somebody of importance is beginning to see what we see. Beginning to recognize. You know, you can you can just imagine how you know excited their their hearts were. They're so used to being in. Outright rejected and being in the minority and having very little influence that now here's somebody who can maybe who can maybe open the doors for for the for the gospel, maybe the way that Christians today get really, really excited when some celebrity begins to say that they um, have been converted and and they immediately grab on to that person and put them all out in front of it, as if somehow maybe that validates their faith or or perhaps it makes our faith more acceptable somehow or it will give us more influence that that you know I mean people are the same. We we respond the same as these guys did. So here's this man. And Jesus ultimately is gonna send this great one away even while he bids the little ones to come. And the disciples are just puzzled. And the truth is that, as we have been seeing, that it is only little children who enter the kingdom of heaven. Only little children. Not just meaning little children physically, but people who recognize that they have nothing in themselves to bring to the table. They don't have any goodness. They don't have any influence with God. There's nothing inherent about them that is anything to boast in. They come into the kingdom at the rank of little children, who are there to be seen and not heard, who who don't have any vote, who don't have any influence in the affairs of men. They're, as it were, no better than slaves. That's the way. It's people who realize that that's their state spiritually that are the only people who are small enough to get into the kingdom. (laughs) And... uh, You know, these disciples are just used to thinking of how big do we have to be to get into the kingdom? Jesus says, no, you have to be very, very small. And uh, this man comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. Teacher, take take note of the question again. Take a look at the text. Look at the form of his question. Teacher. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? This man's focus was the exact place that most religiously seeking people are focused, which is, what must I what? What must I do? He wants to know, what good deed am I missing? What ritual do I still need to perform? What act of righteousness do I still lack in order to have eternal life? And I will say this, that I think that is what separates true Christianity from every other... that Christianity ultimately is not about what I have done, but rather about what Christ has done. And it looks outside of self. This was the great cornerstone of the gospel recovery for Martin Luther. He looked outside of himself to see Someone alien to him whose righteousness was sufficient for eternal life, though his own was far from sufficient. This is the heart of the gospel. Christians are saved from the wrath of God, brought into eternal life, not because of their own good deeds but ultimately because of the good deeds of another. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ, without a doubt. This man asked the question, I think, in a way that most everybody would, who has yet to really come to understand the gospel, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And so Jesus is going to do a couple of things with him. First, he will challenge his thinking. Jesus will challenge this man's thinking about his moral standing and about Christ's identity. And he'll do that with a question. I love how Jesus challenges him by answering his question with a question. He's referred to Jesus as teacher. The other disciples, the other gospels... uh, Mark and Luke, they add the detail that he refers to him as good teacher. Good teacher. But he's really ready. Is he really ready to believe Jesus claims that he is the Son of God? He's a teacher, he's a rabbi. Okay, that's the way he comes to Jesus. You're a teacher, you're, you know, like Nicodemus said, we know that you're a man from God, you're a rabbi. You're a teacher, you're good. And Jesus wants to challenge him exactly on the point of his identity. Is he really ready to believe? Jesus claims that he is the Son of God, like his other disciples have. And this man has come to Jesus acknowledging him as good, as not acknowledging him as someone qualified to determine what it means for a person to do good. He says, you you tell me what is good, what's the good that I have to do for eternal life? And Jesus asked the question. Notice how Jesus responds. Take a look at the text again. He responds with this question, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And of course, everybody's mind would go to God. God's the only one that's good. This man would have acknowledged that in, as Jesus pressed him about it. Why do you call me good? And by that question, Jesus is doing two things. First, he challenges this man's conception of acceptable morality head on. He says, you want to be good? have you really considered the standard that you're going to have to meet? Because there's one good. Who's that? God, my heavenly Father. Remember back in chapter 5, He said, you must be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard. This man says, show me what's good. Jesus said, have you really thought about what good means? Have you really thought what the standard is? You know, most people in the world have a definition of good that is relative. By which I mean that they look and compare themselves and their estimation of their own goodness or badness. They compare themselves to the guy down the street or to the guy in their class or to the guy on their block, to the guy at their workplace They compare themselves to their friend or their family member and they say, well, you know, I'm not that bad a person. I'm actually pretty good when you think about this guy or that guy or the other guy. But Jesus is going right to the heart of his idea of what is good by asking him, who is good? And if you want to be good... You're going to have to be like that person, the only person who is good, and that's God. And the Bible, the Bible will not get a, let us get away with sort of grading ourselves on a sliding scale, sort of just saying, you know what, I'm better than the average. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, we are under a curse if we do not continue to obey Everything that was written in the law. Everything. Galatians 3. James chapter 2, James writes that if you obey the whole law but one, then you're guilty of all of it. That's not the way most people think. Most people want to judge on a whole different standard. Not the standard of God and His perfection as exhibited in the law, but rather through comparing myself with somebody else. And I'm not a bad person. Jesus will not let this stand. And He's going to challenge His acceptable, His conception of acceptable morality. And then secondly, He says, okay, He looks at this guy and He says, okay, you're calling me good? You're looking to me as someone who can prescribe what is good if that's so, then listen, are you really willing to acknowledge the full implications of that statement? Because remember, there's only how many good? One good. And now this man is looking to this rabbi as one who's good, who, who can define good. Who, who it, Does he really realize the full implications of what he's saying? As Jesus said, I and my Father are One. He says, I and my Father are one. And I don't think this man has really thought that through. But Jesus, by these questions, by his questioning him right off the bat, he challenges him about his own sense of morality and is about his own um, affirmation of who Christ is. This man was unwitting, I'm sure, of the implications of his own words. But now what Jesus does secondly, after first of all asking him this question that really challenges him, now he, on the man's own terms, which the man asked, what must I do? On the man's own terms now, Jesus is going to expose the shallowness of his own sense of self-righteousness and the insufficiency of his acceptance of, of Christ's identity claims. He answers the man in his own terms. What must I do? Okay, well, if you would be justified by doing, then you should do everything that the law says to do. So, he says, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. This is what the law said, right? Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, whoever does them shall live through them. So, he says, if you want to keep eternal life, if that's the way you're going to think about it, then keep all the commandments. And now the man, I don't know if he's trying to sort of sidestep the (laughs) the implications of that, or or if he's just... uh, if he's just concerned about um, maybe some commandment that he wants to know what particular commands that this particular rabbi um, prioritizes out of all of the what did the Pharisees say six hundred and thirteen commands of the Old Testament which one does these which ones do these this, does this rabbi have in mind and Jesus says he says all right let's just run through some of them how about you shall not murder that's the sixth command you shall not commit Adultery, that's the seventh. You shall not steal, that's the eighth commandment. You shall not bear false witness, that's the ninth. Honor your father and mother, that's the fifth commandment. So there's commandments five through nine. Five out of the last six that deal with our relationship with other people, Jesus just goes through all of those. And the thing about all of those commandments is that they are all... First of all, they all have to do with with other people, and secondly, they're all externally observable things. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. All right, you can see if somebody's doing that or not doing that. But then Jesus adds that summary of all of the last commands from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. This great command, you shall love your neighbor, like you love yourself. That is a summary of those commandments that gets beneath the surface, doesn't it? To the very heart of those commandments. It's not just that you don't kill your brother. It's that you love your brother. It's not just that you don't steal from him. It's that you give of yourself to him. You love him. You want the best for him. So Jesus pushes beneath the surface of what is external and observable to get right to the very heart of it. But this man, I think, is still focused merely on kind of an external morality, a checklist of of whether he has done or hasn't done in some measurable way what is needed to earn his place in heaven. And so he says uh, naively, I think, in verse 20, (laughs) look at this. What would you say to this kind of statement? This is what this man says. He says, I've kept them all. <laughs> I've kept all the commands. I just, you know, after working through the Ten Commandments back in, in chapter 5 and then in our study in Exodus, you know, it's just hard to imagine someone saying that. But I think that's, that's the way a lot of people think. They measure themselves merely on an external level and, and by comparing themselves with other people... And they check, check, check. Well, I haven't done this, and I haven't done that, and I haven't done this, so I'm a pretty good person. And that's the way this man comes across. All these things I've kept. He says, what do I still lack? And then, here it is. Here is the clincher. This is where Jesus exposes this man's wrong thinking, both about himself and about the Lord. Verse 21, Jesus says to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And of course, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. You know why I think this is the clincher? Because what this does in, in the first place is to very clearly now expose this man's sin. Because the wealth that he has and the influence that he has and his lifestyle has become for him his ultimate love, his ultimate hope. Even though deep down he he knows that he lacks something, he is unwilling to trust Jesus enough to give it up. The wealth that he has has become an idolatrous thing for him It's become the God of his life. And the point in Jesus telling him to get rid of his material possessions and follow Christ, the point is not to say that this is Jesus' will for every single Christian, that you all must sell everything that you possess and live a life of poverty. Because Jesus never commands that from every one of his followers. He didn't command it of the wealthy family of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. He didn't command it of Joseph of Arimathea. He didn't command that of the women who supported the disciples from their own resources or from many of the wealthy people that Paul wrote his letters to scattered across the Roman Empire. The point is not to say that's what every single person has to do. It's certainly not to say that there's some sort of quid pro quo where you give God all your stuff and live a life of poverty and God will give you heaven as as a kind of um, equal return by no means. The point at one level is to expose this man's sins This man does not perfectly love his neighbor as himself, no matter how vigorously he may defend his own righteousness. He doesn't love God with all his heart. He doesn't love his neighbor as he loves himself. And the problem is that most people think of themselves as good people. And the problem is, with a person like that is he's never thought deeply enough about his own sin. He's never probed beneath the surface, beneath the mere external, comparing himself with other people. And listen today, if you would enter the kingdom of heaven, you must stop comparing yourself and your goodness with the goodness of other people and start comparing it with what it ought to have been. In this final command, Jesus strips away the surface veneer and shows the sin of this man's heart. But even more profoundly than that, Jesus exposes this man's lack of faith in Christ. If Jesus is truly and ultimately the one who is good, and there's only one, If he is that one, will this rich young ruler finally acknowledge Jesus like the disciples have? Who said, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Will this man acknowledge him likewise? And here's the test. If you're talking to God, if you believe that you're talking to God, young man, then leave everything and follow Him. Is He God or is He not God? I mean, there's the test. What do you believe about Him? Who do you think He really is? You who called Him good? You who, you who see Him as the one who defines what is, what is right and good and acceptable and will get you into heaven? Do you really believe the implications of what you say? And sadly, this man is not convinced about who Jesus is. He does not really believe. And he doesn't trust and love the Messiah, the Savior, enough to act on his command. And I want to remind us that it is not the giving up of anything that saves a person. It's not giving away money that God ultimately demands of you. He may demand it of you, but that's not what this is ultimately about. It's not about giving up some bad habit or doing enough good deeds to somehow maybe make up for the bad that you have done. The, 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 the most important thing about this entire exchange is, and, and the most important thing for any of us, is a willingness to give up whatever Christ demands because you've become, become convinced that He is good. You are sure of that. The words that this man used, Jesus says, do you really believe them? If you really believe them, then follow me. It's not the the leaving of everything that's key here. It's the following of Christ that's the key. It's the believing in Christ. And I tell you today, don't let anything hold you back from Jesus Christ. If you're here today without Him, leave whatever you have to leave. Run to Him, follow Him, come to Him, and He will save you and he alone can save Jesus turns to the disciples now after this whole interaction with the with this man and he wants to teach them now something from this interaction something about salvation and the nature of grace so he says to the disciples verse 23 now he says truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Only with difficulty can a rich person make it. Riches, wealth, prosperity are one of Satan's great distractions, one of his false hopes, one of his substitute God's his lesser loves. And Jesus, remember, told this parable of of the man who sowed the seed and part of the seed fell on ground that was infested with thorns. And the thorns came up and choked out the growth of this little plant. And Jesus said, the thorns that came up and choked out the Word of God, the seed that would go into that person's life, that would grow up into salvation, the thing that choked that out, He said, was the riches of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the cares of this world. And so that man proves unfruitful. Riches are deceitful. They are. You know what riches say? Riches lie to you. Riches say, get more of me and I'll satisfy you. Then you'll really be satisfied. Just get a little more of me. Riches say, get more of me and I'll take care of you. You'll never have to worry. You'll be okay. Riches say, I'm what you really need. All of the claims that only Christ can make are made by the deceitfulness of riches. And that's true for any sin. It really is. Not just for the love of money. The love of money is a root of all of, of, all, of all kinds of sin. But but the, there's a whole lot of there are a whole lot of things that that lie in the roots of our hearts that we that promise us satisfaction, security, happiness, purpose, and none of it is telling you the truth, except the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, "Come to me." And I will give you rest. I will give you everything that your soul needs. I will give you life. Say, no, 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 no. This thing over here, that looks like really living to me. That thing, that's, that's life. And it's all a facade. And it's lying to you. This is what the Word of God is saying. Jesus speaks the truth. And the question is, do you believe He is who He says He is? In fact, not only is the salvation of a rich man difficult, but the heart of man being what it is, repentance, is not only difficult, it is humanly impossible. So Jesus says, follow the text, Again, I say to you, it is easier for... This is one we don't forget. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished. And they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It's ludicrous, isn't it? Trying to imagine this huge animal fitting through a little, the eye of a little needle. It's, it's impossible. No wonder they said that. It's impossible. Who can be saved? Jesus said, yeah, humanly, it is impossible. Now, some interpreters do try to say that what Jesus said was impossible might actually have been possible because there's this old sort of wives' tale that, that there was a gate in the wall of Jerusalem. Maybe you've heard this one. There was a small gate that was called the eye of the needle. And, and you, if a camel kind of got down on its knees, it could sort of you know, squeeze through the gate. And that's the way we have to come to God, is get down on our knees, humble ourselves, and... You know, there's, a little, there's just enough truth to kind of make it go, yeah, okay, that sounds like that'll preach. Um, the problem is, there, there doesn't seem to be any evidence in the Bible or even outside the Bible that there was a gate that was called the eye of the needle. Um, what Jesus is saying is, this is not just hard, it's not just really, really tough, it's just impossible. You can't put a camel through a needle, it's not going to happen. And Jesus can say that it is impossible for someone who, has, who is holding on to his sin to be saved because Jesus knows the wickedness of human hearts. And it's universal. There aren't some people who are willing to give up their sin in and of themselves and there are other people who aren't. They're all not willing. There's just an impossibility to the whole thing. Humanly speaking. But praise God, that's not the end of the story, right? Because he says, what is impossible with man, he said, with God, all things are possible. True repentance and true salvation, true faith is a human impossibility because hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. Because in our flesh, There is no good thing because the mind of the flesh does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Indeed, it cannot. If you are in the flesh, you cannot please God. It is true because none is righteous. No, not one. Because no one understands. No one seeks after God. Jesus says it with man. It is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. God can put the camel through the eye of the needle. God can soften the heart of the rich man. God... Can open the eyes of the blind or cause the deaf to hear or the lame to leap. And he can grant repentance to a totally depraved sinner and faith to a person who is consumed with his idolatries. So call out to the Almighty God that he would save you. Look to Jesus, run to him. God, you know, God can melt the hardest of hearts. There is no sin that is too great for God's grace. What is holding you back? This morning, from following Jesus, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from identifying as a Christian or following Christ with all your heart? Is it money? Is it another person? Is it pride? Is it fear? Is it wanting to look a certain way in front of people? Is it concern with what other people think? Friend, let it go. Let it go. You could gain the whole world, but it will do you no good if you lose your own soul in hell. May God grant to you a miracle that you'd say in your heart, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. You pray with me. Heavenly Father, please do a miracle in the hearts of some hearer here today. Please, right now, you know the, you know the one who is closest to hell if you do not intercede, Intervene. We pray that you would. We intercede right now for that brother, for that, for that, yep, for that person, for that, for that woman, for that boy or girl. Lord, we inter- intercede for our loved one, our friend. Lord, I pray that you would do a miracle and open a heart. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. With heads bowed and eyes.